Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show here on WDWS. I'm here with a couple of my regular guests. I'm going to adjust my headphones there. Uh, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, always good to have you. Thank you. Certified financial planner, professional, and retirement income certified professional, David Rudy, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. David, good morning. Good morning. He also lives down the street from me, just in case anybody's <laughs> probably not interested in that, but uh, he's probably sorry about that, Fred. Uh, and certified financial planner, professional, Ryan Repka, who also works with me at Rudy Wealth Management and also kind of lives down the street. Yes, we are those people. <laughs> Good morning. You guys have to stop following me in the neighborhood. I know. I, well, you know, since I got a new car, well, I didn't buy a new car. I bought a, a used car, two-year-old. And uh, I saw Katie, your wife, my daughter, and, of course, the two little guys walking across the street, and they didn't know who this madman coming at them was because they were so used to seeing me in that old 2007 Chevy Suburban. So they like they're having a good walk. And today it's tennis, I understand, right? Is that what he has, your yep. oldest? Yep. Ryan? I mean, uh, Coop? Tennis today, soccer tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I remember those days. Uh, call in with your request to 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 3515357. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS.com. We do welcome calls and uh you know, we I think uh, listeners get an enjoyment from those two to see what's coming on in people's minds. We also want to welcome those turning in to Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Fred Tariff, the Tariff King. Right. Now I don't want. I, so my goal is not to be political at all. But obviously, this is fresh. You know, I guess. Right. Maybe if we had a show a week ago, it would have been more appropriate to talk about the ones with Mexico, the, t- the proposed tariffs on Mexico, but that seems to have resolved itself uh, to the market's delight. But So I was, uh, and I'm going to go to this, so where's my other, somewhere. So I was on, when it comes to tariffs, because this has been weighing on everybody, and you've, right. you've made a pretty eloquent, uh, you know, you, you use your grocery store analogy about deficits. Well, I did a little more reading. It's always dangerous, I suppose. Uh, and I read it, uh, some interesting articles. One was by Mark Perry, but uh, I'm just going to kind of read from some of these. Uh, well, one was rather scathing from an economist. It says, uh, and that raises a serious problem for business. He was referring to the most recent round of tariffs. Can or should they continue to make deals and investments? He's talking about this uncertainty. Um, here we've passed, you know, we've had regulatory uh, reductions, which... I think have released the animal spirits. We've had tax reductions, uh, corporate primarily, and I think that's also increased the animal spirits somewhat. That's arguable. Uh, but is this regime uncertainty that's coming on? Um, is that could that offset part of the good economic uh, results from those former two things I talked about? Sure, to a certain extent, this last round seemed to be a situation where. They actually started to hit home. The first year or two was mostly uh, talk and uh, and concern about what might happen, but actually things started to happen in terms of uh, agricultural exports, things of that sort, and that may have brought us back more to reality. The other thing is that uh, none of these uh, threats seem to ever totally materialize, and it may be partially that they're settling things and they're not a whole lot different than they were before but they at least get them off the table and people don't think about them anymore but the fact is you can't you can't have everything you can't have tariffs and then compensate all the people who lose by the tariffs and then right. come out ahead uh, again and, and kind of be all over the place and starting to send a signal and i'm not well i'm, I'm yeah. i don't like the idea of tariffs but uh so this isn't really a political criticism it's just saying it would strike me as a business owner myself that really isn't all that i guess i'm impacted in a yeah. sense but it just tends to create this overhang of uncertainty like oh now right. are we going to start using tariffs for everything yeah and again it's not a, a very effective weapon but there are different ways that tariffs have their impact the one way which is probably the most important but the least targeted is that we simply pay higher prices for things that we were buying in the past and no one you know paying an extra 
two uh, percent at uh, Walmart's going to go crazy about that. But the, the other thing, which is more uh, uh, targeted, is the people who want to export. You can't have it both ways. You can't. Uh, cut off uh, things coming in and still expect to be able to sell as easily on the world market. So that's been uh, another problem. And the, the bottom line, though, is it, it, it's just not a good idea. Again, the, these numbers are not precise, but estimates are it costs like 900000 to a million dollars a year to, to generate one job by tariffs. Right. And that's you don't win by and those are the jobs that are seen as opposed to the ones we might have had that right. are unseen and, uh, so you know, a hundred giving a, a person a job for a hundred thousand dollars at the yeah. cost of a million dollars is not a very efficient way and if we just want to create jobs we could have people dig holes sure. and uh fill them up again so i was reading a mark perry article and and it's ffe magazine i don't even know what it, i didn't have time to look what that stands for but i'll attribute the article and this gets into trump and i want your big picture on this because this this is not you kind of uh hinted about it with your your definition of what a, a deficit is in the grocery yeah. store but he wrote bottom line if you're correct if uh you correct trump's upside down thinking so he just said his whole thinking on tariffs is upside yeah. down and apply friedman milton friedman's insight uh that the gain from trade with china is what we import not export america enjoyed a large 375 billion annual dollar billion uh, stuff stuff surplus, in other right. words, uh, or a net inflow of goods from China last year. That is an outcome that we should uh, should be celebrated, not condemned. Contrary to Trump's upside down thinking about trade and speaking in his distorted language. Now, this is not me saying this, so I don't want calls about this. It's actually the U.S. that has perpetrated the greatest theft of merchandise in the history of the world, totaling to more than three trillion three tr- trillion in accumulated stuff surpluses over the last decade. Um, translate that. In well, other words, he's yeah, saying that he's all, this, to, the, all the language being used is upside down, that mm-hmm. we should be celebrating that we're right. importing things that we need and want, and we're exporting things we don't need and don't want. Right. Well, I, the, the, he kind of, I think, uh, uh, hurt his own case by putting in the word theft. I mean, what's happened is the Chinese have been willing to sell us a lot of things, and, and, and in fact, uh, what they take it back is not goods and services, but often IOUs from us. Right, and, and and also we have lots of investment coming into the country because because of that. So again, that's so I wouldn't call it. A, it's not a theft, but the, the other, there are two problems with uh, uh, Trump's outlook. One is the idea that uh, people lose by trade. Yes, and, and the other is that somehow there should be a balance between countries. So that goes back right. to the, the grocery store analogy. And again, do the other side of things. When, when I, uh, before I retired, the, the the University of Illinois paid me a whole lot more than I paid the University of Illinois, right. and I, I don't think uh, they felt they were being exploited. Just like I don't feel I'm being exploited when I spend more at a grocery store than they spend with me. So the the idea that you should have balanced trade between every country makes no sense at all. And the fact is, we don't. And and what what we export more often goes to uh, places other than China. But we also, uh, in addition to that, because the United States is such a, uh, a strong country economically, people are willing to invest here. And part of the surplus comes back as investment into the economy. And so if we, and Milton Friedman always used the, if we're out in a boat, several of us, and one person shoot, shoots a hole in the boat with our gun, does it make sense for us to start shooting holes in the boat too? And he meant, and his point was people that have tariffs or try to protect, have protectionist tendencies, uh, not only hurt the other country, they hurt themselves. They inflict pain to themselves. Right. And if we impose further tariffs, then yes, we're hurting them a little bit more, but we're now we're really hurting ourselves. Yeah. Is that is that p- fairly it's simple? True. Right. I think that's true. The, the one, if you want to make a, a case for uh, tariffs as a as a kind of weapon or tariffs as a as an instrument. Uh, the one area uh, might be in terms of intellectual property. If you're using intellectual property uh, issues that, that China appears to be uh, taking advantage of the United States, you could use that as a lever to, to try to get a better deal. But that doesn't have anything to do with uh, right. tr- the trade back and forth. And again, uh, uh, going kind of uh, far afield here, uh, the countries that really have developed quickly are the uh, South Southeast Asian countries, first Japan and then uh, 
uh, Korea, South uh, Vietnam, uh, yeah, but even earlier, oh, though, uh, yeah. earlier like uh, Taiwan and oh, okay. China, they all came from trade. The old way of uh, of uh, developing was like in South America, uh, you build a steel plant, put up tariffs to keep steel from coming in, and you build your own cars, you build your own everything, and that simply is a is a no win kind of situation. You win by by trading and win by being competitive, not by by being uncompetitive. So. If some of these, you know, free market thinkers are right, it's we should really celebrate more that we're exporting very little to import a lot of things we need and want. And he wrote, he he went on to say, if foreign governments want to use their taxpayers' money to sell people in in the United States goods below cost, why should we complain? Their own taxpayers will complain soon enough, and it will not last for very long. Right. Well, again, I think that's an overstatement. There, there, there are all kinds of arguments. Milton Friedman <laughs> overstates things? That was Milton Friedman. Okay. But I think the, that, that's true. But there are also uh, there are arguments that could be true, but really uh, seldom are. One is the idea, well, you have to have a, a tariff in order to get your industry started, the infant industry argument. Well, infants never grow up in that kind of thing. Right, they always need it. The other is, well, we need, uh, we need uh, strategic uh, uh, supplies of whatever it is, steel or whatever it might be, but nowadays that's uh, almost irrelevant in, in most cases. Uh, uh, like a, a, a five-year war like World War II is not going to happen anymore right. where we get cut off from supplies. So uh, so basically it's the only uh, really good argument now I think would be trying to deal with an issue such as intellectual property. I think Trump likes tariffs. I was starting to think he didn't. This was all a game to try to go to no tariffs, but when you really look back at some, and again, I'm, uh, please, yeah. I don't, I'm not trying to be political. Uh, uh, I like a lot of the policies that mm-hmm. he has put in place. This is just one area I really don't. When He always complained about when the Japanese economy was really rocking and rolling in the late yeah. 80s. I read an article uh, that he was in in the 90s about how they've been ripping us off for years. Yeah. And then they take that money you know, that we send to them. They come and they buy Rockefeller Plaza and they buy our best stuff as if... Yeah. Is if it makes your point, as if it's not a voluntary exchange that makes both parties better. No, it makes it better. And again, uh, uh, I know farmers don't like this, but uh, I don't think that some uh, uh, foreigner is going to come buy farmland and, and dig it up and take it to wherever they're, they're yeah. from. It's got to be farmland, nevertheless. And, well, and Rockefeller Center is still a a big building in New York City. Right. So I, I, again, if you and Pebble it, Beach is traded hands and all these. But things. but if you're if you're uh, importing more than you're exporting, people are getting IOUs and they have a right to use those IOUs uh, to buy things. Is it as simple as saying we're importing these things? In other words, we're doing it because we can import them for less than we can produce them. Sure. At a cost. Right. And so it would be irrational then for a, a, a homeowner, a family to say, I really wish I would have to pay more for less stuff. Right. If you're for tariffs. Yeah. yeah. And again, well, uh, we, we have to be careful. It's not every person in the whole country benefits by of free trade. There are people, if you have a job in some specialized industry that's being uh, damaged by, by trade, you obviously may be hurt. And again, the uh, if you got rid of the sugar tariffs, uh, the, the rich, Sure, owners would not be right. happy about that. So it's not that uh, 100% of the people gain, but uh, the, the gains far outweigh the losses. Are you suggesting we may have corporate cronyism in this country? Yeah. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> so I know there are a lot of people out there who are worried specifically about tariffs, but right. even at a broader level, just Donald Trump and just his way well, of being. <laughs> right. His way what, of tweeting. What do you tell people who are worried about that, especially ones who are worried from an investment standpoint. Because I think a lot of people see this and their reaction is, well, there's no way this can be good for the the stock market. And you've seen clients that have even reacted and saying, you know, heck, I'm a certain age, you know, they'll, they'll carp about a certain policy and then they'll say, maybe it's time I just once and for all get out of the stock market. So we all, all get this. We always have to step back and remind them of, so I always use those opportunities and they're always sorry that they ask me a simple question, what do you think of this? And I'll say, well, look, when you came to me, we were on the front end of a 30 year retirement period. We're a third of the way through or halfway through, you know, and and frankly, if they're two thirds of the way through, we've probably made an allocation change already. And, but, and the reality of the modern day three decade retirement is you're facing it, it basically the biggest pro, the retirement is essentially an income problem. How do I generate an income over the next two to three decades that's going to need to double 
if history is any guide, or potentially even triple over some periods of history. And, and then if we look back at that and say, well, if our costs are going to double or triple, we need an income stream that at least doubles and triples. And how are we going to do that? And we decided X number of years ago that having all of our money in CDs or fixed income producing vehicles was not going to work. That was ultimately going to be a disaster on the installment plan. And I brought it to your attention, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that you were born, you know, sometime around World War II or the end of World War II. And just remind me what your life story is for rising income investments, which some people call the stock market. I call it ownership, of the uh, partial ownership of the great companies of America and the world. And so we're either lending our money for those 30 years or we are going to be partial owners of companies and rising income investments or somewhere in between is the most likely scenario. And we decided that the allocation that had, from an historical perspective anyway, if history is any guide, and it's the only guide we have and, and maybe need, that we decided that a portfolio that's 60% uh, stocks and 40% bonds or CDs uh, historic, historically would have gotten you where you want to be with room to spare. I saw a, a uh, I watched uh, Antique Roadshow last night, and there was a lady who came in, and her parents bought her a violin in... Um, 1938 for uh, $300, and they said, "Well, now it's worth now it's worth uh, seven or eight thousand dollars." That was really fantastic. Would right. you do the math? Uh, <laughs> that always ruins it for me. That's why I can't watch the show because I'm instantly computing compounded returns at 10 to 12 percent, and thinking yeah. like, "Oh, well, you got gypped." Yeah. <laughs> so it takes the fun of it. So I we always have to remind people of the basic deal. That is, and so getting back to your specific question, when it's the apocalypse du jour, the policy du jour, or did you see that most recent tweet or fill in the bank, you have to say, look, if I've learned anything, we have to ignore this, these things that we cannot control. Uh, the economy is this big machine that's almost a miracle in itself. Um, it has produced returns for the owners of equity somewhere in the 10 to 12%. So the story of the stock market doubling over the last, continuously over the last couple hundred years doesn't seem to be changed to me. And let's revisit about the, the cost of the higher returns that you need is, is this premium fluctuation. And so therefore, I, I, it sometimes comes down to six words. You don't want to do that, right? Okay. You don't want to do that. And here's why the key, David, and guys, is I never say it's going to get better by next Tuesday or that I know how it's going to get better or I know when things are going to get better, only that they will get better in time. And that's so if, if my if somebody said, what, what's your philosophy? I'd say it's simple. It's history. And it's it. But it, what I found is you can't just say, well, you're in it for the long haul. <laughs> Be patient. You know, have faith. It, that doesn't solve it. It's you really have to step back. What did we agree to? Why did we agree to it? Has anything changed there? And it always gets back to really nothing's changed other than some knucklehead tweet uh, or policy du jour uh, that's happened. And if there's any value, if there's any one single value of a financial advisor in a person's life, at these key inflection points, and many times they're at key market turning points. The difference between uh, spending the rest of your life in eternal financial sadness and having the life that you always dreamed of is going to come down to having a good advisor at your side that you trust, that you've developed enough trust that when that advisor sometimes says, look, I can't prove anything, but if you do what you want to do, it's probably going to be the biggest mistake in your life. I don't want you to do it. I'm not going to try to spout a lot of facts it's just sometimes it's because i said so i'm your advisor that's the deal so these things fred and dave ryan you all people what do i always say people are at the end of the day human nature is a failed investor and that's mainly because of the this emotions that are involved uh, and panic when the disease of panic sets in it becomes incurable so we always, as advisors, have to inoculate them ahead of time, do our lifeboat drills, talk about the deal. And uh, so the key is always is to never let clients get surprised by what's happening as far as the market's reaction to it or the bond market's reaction to it. Because when people panic, you know, that's when they make disastrous decisions. And then I've always said, 
surprise is the mother of mm -hmm. panic, so therefore it's our job to make sure that our clients never get surprised. Am I going to sit here on this radio show <laughs> and say that I've never had a client that, despite all of our conversations, doesn't get surprised? Of course. It just tells me there's always more work to do. And I think one of the, the points we see a lot of times is people think, oh, this time it's different, right? Don't you feel they that? always <laughs> think this time is different, right? This, this has never happened before, Paul. Right. This particular incident has never been seen yeah. in, in history. And for this reason and, and this extremely important reason, I have to get out or I have to make right. a change. And that's always the historical perspective that is so valuable is knowing that, you know, this isn't really that unique. We see different things that impact markets every single day. Why is this any different? And in most cases, it generally isn't. But Fred, I'll get to you. I've, I've kind of reduced it to this. Oh, when everything's calm, cool, and collected, uh, we're dumb enough to listen to ourselves, right? <laughs> uh, when things are hyped up in the media, in the pundits, and the stress levels are high, we're dumb enough to listen to other people. I mean, that, that's we listen to the pundits at then, and this all gets circles back to emotion, emotion, mm -hmm. emotion. The the biggest problem with successful investing is human nature, and that's driven by emotion. Fred? Well, I'm uh, thinking slow today, but uh, I should have mentioned this back when we were talking about China. But okay. <clears throat> we, have, we have this imbalance, supposedly, of trade between uh, China and the United States. Right, that's supposedly but, disastrous. But, uh, ask yourself, uh, where has the University of Illinois growth come from the last 10 years? Is that at risk? It's, it's, no, it's Chinese students who, I, who are I, recycling the money. <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, I'm kind of asking a different question. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be a big part of the growth in the past and yeah. the future plans of growth. Right. Uh, does, is that suddenly maybe Jeff Brown's brilliant move of insuring against? <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe he'll call it the Trump put. Right. I don't know. I, those are my words, not yeah. not Jeff Brown's from the University of Illinois, the dean of the College of Business. Yeah. Uh, that that I could see a serious scenario where this escalates enough and. That's one of the weapons. Yeah, they they have weapons as well as, as the yeah. weapons we have. So those kind of, so we forget sometimes that uh, these dollars actually are coming back and coming back in a very uh, direct way in the area here. Yeah, they sure are. Uh, so uh, other things to worry about these days. Uh, so you know we get those, but then now they all the announcement that the short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates, this yield curve inversion. And when I look at, as of yesterday, the bond <laughs> yield on the 10-year treasury is 2.15%, but it was yeah. almost 3% not too long ago. Right. Uh, everybody's getting excited about that. Yeah, something about uh, uh, backdoor kind of active management, how many people have predicted this, and the answer is zero out of about 4,000 people. And, and what seems to be happening, because when we look at the uh, – Treasury inflation protected security, just as an aside, that's at 0.42. So expected inflation, would, one would say, is 1.73. So it doesn't look like we have high real interest no. rates. You know, what the current rate at the banks, et cetera, mm -hmm. net of inflation are still relatively low. So I'm not too, I'm not too concerned about a recession anytime soon just because right. we're in this inverted real. I think it takes both of those things, low real yields. But what appears to be happening to me, because the stock market has improved quite a bit, but the bond market, you know, basically it suggests to me this pretty drastic drop in interest rates over the last three to four yeah. weeks is kind of this uneasiness with the economy right. of a slowdown. And so the, the investors are saying, look, we want to swap and we want to hedge our risk of lower right. interest rates in recession. Yeah, it appears Would that be fair? I think so. And again, uh, it's always dangerous to explain the. Uh, stock market after the fact, but it appears this recent uh, rally is more in, in response to the uh, law, potential lowering of interest rates by the Fed than it is with the trade issues. Uh, you're, you're, I think you're right, and there's this full expectation, but you know, the Federal Reserve doesn't appear tight at all to me. No. I mean, yeah, they've hiked short-term interest rates, but that's not the same thing as saying right. they're tightening. Right. Uh, I'm not in that camp yet that's convinced that we need lower short-term interest rates. Maybe yeah. maybe I'm dead wrong on that. But well, it's hard to know. If they're so low already. Well, yeah, the, the, the question is, uh, if you're lowering interest rates in good times, what do you do when the bad times come? Yeah, well, there's this. Uh, tell me about the new monetary theory or what? what is that called? The, well, it's a new monetary theory. It's a, kind of an ad hoc theory by... Uh, I guess I don't want to characterize economists by by not uh, distinguished sure, economists right. uh, uh, who say that uh, again, uh, like uh, I was talking about, uh, this time is different. The world right. is different now. We don't have to worry about deficits. We can 
we can spend, spend and all spend we want, and, 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 and inflation money and, and inflation doesn't uh, come back to bite us. And and again, there are probably some situations during short periods of time when that is true. Maybe in 1934, that probably was not a, a unreasonable kind of policy. But to have it as a everyday working kind of uh, theory is simply not. Uh, not practical, I think, and, and, and very few economists really buy into it. It sure seems, as I look around the globe, we're in a disinflationary period yeah. still. And, I mean, it's been going on for more than a decade. And, and gosh, it doesn't doesn't look like there's an end in sight usually about that well, time. It's kind there of, is, but... Yeah, yeah, it's kind of the best of all worlds in that sense, that narrow sense. Uh, people used to talk about the misery index, which was adding together the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. So in the early 80s, we had like a 20% misery index. Today we have like a 4% or 5% misery yeah. index, which is part of the lowest in history. And so, but, but again, that, that's not necessarily the new world that's going to exist forever into the of future. Course. By the time we get lulled into believing that is about the time it will uh, uh, awaken us. So guys, I'm going to go to uh, a little different area. Biggest threats to your retirement. Now, is this a blog that we wrote? Or Paul wrote? Or? Paul wrote it. Yeah. yeah. I see some of my, uh, well, I guess I have an impact. Sometimes you guys listen to me because I can see some of my type of words in there. So I want to <laughs> talk about that. Uh, and you can go to RudyWealth.com to see that blog. And before I mention that, I want to remind people of the phone number, which is 356-9397. If you have a question, feel free to call us or you can text us at 351-5357 on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. Um, number one he has, and I don't think it's necessarily the order, but the one I was just talking about, and that's inflation. And he's, he writes about a multi-decade retirement, faces a serious problem. Uh, inflation going to cause the cost to maintain their current lifestyle, I mean, their lifestyle to double or triple. Uh, he calls it a financial death by 100 paper cuts. Um, so let's talk about how we deal with that reality. I mean, if we're, if we're looking at, if that's reality, and historically, Fred, that's fair to say right. that the cost of living, at least, is described by the CPI or some form of a standard data, has doubled to tripled over most 30-year uh, time horizons. So in our conversation, guys, how are we dealing with it? I mean, David, I'm, you know, if someone says, well, well, let's, let me put it this way. Isn't it not uncommon for a 62-year-old couple to come in and say, look, uh, we need this amount of money to live on. We have. We would like to have all our money. We just need income. We want bonds. Uh, so just give me bonds. And you know, how do we actually blocking and tackling deal with this? How, when a client comes in, do you determine how to deal with inflation, which is probably through asset allocation? But how do you get to that asset allocation? Well, I think you just first and foremost have to kind of explain the two different types of investments and the way I categorize things is, look, you've got stocks, which are ownership in companies, and bonds. And bonds don't fluctuate much, but they provide basically very little return, net of taxes and inflation. And stocks fluctuate a lot in the short run, which retirees don't like, but they're pretty much the only asset that actually grows over a long period of time. And so as you said earlier today, it's really a matter of the vast majority of people have to have at least a portion of their assets in stocks or the stuff that grows, just put simply, or what I to, call rising income to allow their income to grow over time as well. So I think the trap people can fall into is they can look at an all fixed income portfolio and see that it meets their income need today. But if their income needs double or triple over the next 20 or 30 years, it may not actually meet their income need at that point. Well, how do you drill into ultimately when you're going to recommend Here's basically the allocation or close to it that I think we should target. Uh, is that through do doing different scenarios? Uh, how does the client ultimately, between you and the client, uh, settle on one? Well, usually I do a, you know, I build a financial plan and it's going to have a, a certain life expectancy, which is a pretty long period of time. And the cost of living is kind of baked into that financial plan. The inf there's an inflation assumption built into it. And then I look at a few different asset allocations. So usually on the front end, we'll have a discussion. You get a feel for what's kind of ballpark appropriate. Like if someone's super, super uh, nervous about investing, I'm probably not going to suggest an 80% stock portfolio just because I know they they just wouldn't be able to handle it. But I might start at, you know, 50% stock, 50% bonds, and then show them, you know, maybe if you increase your equity percentage 20% or decrease it 20%. And some of that I like to just 
the way I phrase it is it shows the relationship and the impact of varying your allocation. Not that these are the only three options, but you can see, okay, if you put up with a little more fluctuation, here's the, the positive impacts and here are the negative impacts and vice versa. And the negative impacts, of course, are always you're going to put up with more fluctuation fluctuation if you reach for a higher expected return from a portfolio that has more ownership, partial ownership of the great companies of America and the world versus bonds. Uh, and but here's here's the pickup, which you, which is usually maybe a little more income, but not typically for the for the clients themselves, the retirees. But it can have a significant <coughs> impact in terms of margin for error in case in case there are rising further rising costs and surprises, or if that doesn't show up, you know, really has more of a a higher stock market exposure, likely has a higher impact an impact on a higher legacy value to the people we love and and cherish. That's fair enough to say. The next one, uh, this is the one probably most people focus on the most. Uh, he, he calls it a bear, Paul calls it a bear market early in retirement. Let's just call it just a bad stock and bond markets, bad investment markets uh, on the front end of retirement. Uh, what is it we need to be concerned about that and how do we treat it? So this just goes back to a bad sequence of returns. So if you're starting out in retirement, and you start out at a time where there is a depression or a recession or just not favorable, like you say, it doesn't matter in any of the case, it's not the best start simply because you need a long term time to fund your lifestyle over the next 30 years. So starting out on a low end, uh, you have to be aware that that can happen. And so you have to plan accordingly that we need to make sure should that happen, if it arises and I have that bad instance, that I have bonds set up in place that can fund at a minimum my essential lifestyle needs. That would be food, housing, transportation, whatever it may be, uh, and then possibly funding that for three to five years, depending on what your needs and goals may be. Paul, I think in his blog, called it a bond tent, simply meaning that you start out with a higher allocation of bonds, just owning more bonds in the early part of retirement. And then after a period of time, you sell off some of those bonds or you spend those bonds during those years to then get to a, a little lesser position in bonds. So, you know, kind of a, a reverse glide path where you're really trying to be quite protective on the first three to five years of retirement, but with the realization that over the 30-year retirement, instead of 50% stocks, I might be 60 or 65 or 70. Yeah. That probably <laughs> takes some convincing, though, because it's basically kind of a rebalancing where the market goes down and you sell your bonds, which are your safe things, and keep right. your uh, volatile things. But that's what you have to do to, to deal with your... Right. Uh, so, you know, the sequence of returns risk... Uh, probably has a bigger impact than the actual return itself. That's what all my research suggests. So it's just how are we going to treat this? How are we going to deal with it in a sensible, realistic fashion? And typically it says, hey, three to five years before retirement, you may want to calm down your allocation. And the first three to five years, so that 10 years surrounding your retirement date, what we believe is it calls for a little extra care and be, being careful when it comes to your asset allocation. And the other solution that's really helpful when you get a bad sequence of returns is just having a process in place for adjusting your portfolio withdrawals in response to poor market returns. That can go a really long way. So if you get hit with a big market decline right on the front end of retirement, you don't just spend the exact same amount you spent the year prior. You might cut it a little bit. You make adjustments. And, you know, there's different strategies for doing that that, you know, we don't need to get into today. But there is research that shows that can be very, very beneficial in dealing with with a poor sequence of investment returns. And then there's some people that will use a safety first approach. It's not really part of the article, but it's certainly one way some people choose to address that risk of either, uh, and it, even part of the next one, uh, which is poor long-term investment returns, but certainly uh, it, you know, from a bear market in that I'm afraid of what could happen in the, you know, I always kid with prospective clients. I said, oh, I bet you feel like you could write the book. How come investments work until I buy them? You know, and they all get a chuckle because they all identify with it because that's what we're all afraid of. Uh, you want to discuss the safety first idea? It's not really one that, I guess we do it in our own version, but not in a technical standpoint. Well, the gist of it is if you identify your essential expenses that you just need to maintain your fundamental standard standard of living, not your ideal lifestyle, but one that just gets you by, you make sure that you have that level of income in guaranteed income sources. So it's going to be some combination of pension income, Social Security, and if those two sources aren't enough, 
then you can buy uh, an immediate annuity, which basically you're transferring a lump sum of, of investment assets in exchange for a guaranteed income stream for the remainder of your life. Okay. And that's another way to – sometimes it gives people peace of mind. Like, well, I know I have at least this much income coming in, even in the worst-case scenario. There's a lot of ways to get there, is, I think, is the whole point. And, of course, that even goes – you know, the next one, as I said, is poor long-term investment returns. We all worry about it, and all the pundits, especially these days. And, of course, it hasn't a decade gone by when some big mutual fund company will say the returns over the next 10 years are going to be poor. Uh, you know, they don't know any better than anybody off the street. Um, so how do, you, how do you deal with the notion, guys, that we don't know what our return, our lifetime return is going to be 30, day, 30 years in advance, let alone 30 days in advance. Um, so wh- where does that come into the, the analysis and the asset allocation and that type of situation? So I think we start with saying we don't know, so we can't assume that average is going to show up because we know over a long period of time we're going to see times where it's going to be above average, below average, anywhere in between. Um, so we have to essentially sandbag it. And, and start out earlier on in retirement, potentially holding back on maybe your max or your ideal spending. It's not necessarily sacrificing your lifestyle, but not reaching for the stars on the first day or first few years of retirement, simply so that you can potentially weather a slight storm should it come. And in 30 years, there will be a storm of some capacity. We just don't know the magnitude or when. Uh, so it's just a matter of being flexible, I think. And uh, like you just mentioned, David, having the ability to pull back on some spending is really the ultimate success. And one of the things you guys do, and I do it as well, you guys do most of that work now, is you do a lot of simulation. So you're saying, look, we don't know what returns are going to be, but we can simulate thousands of 30-year retirement incomes and make sure that when we look at the bad ones, uh, we still have a reasonable confidence that we're going to be able to live the life we live if we get some of those bad returns. And that's, that's really another way to address it, isn't it? Right. And then one thing I, we haven't discussed, but kind of an obvious solution, just probably not, not objectively optimal solution, is just taking a really conservative withdrawal rate from your portfolio. So if you think about like the 4% rule, it basically is saying you could spend 4% of your starting portfolio balance and increase it for inflation for the rest of your retirement. That's, that's just the gist of it. It's a fairly right. popular rule. Um, that's based on the worst 30-year period in the history of the U.S. So if you want to just follow that or follow like a 3% rule to be extra conservative just for whatever reason, just, I'm just pulling that number out right. of the hat, then you really don't need to be flexible because chances are even in the absolute worst-case scenario, at least if it's – similar in magnitude to the worst case in history, right. you're going to be fine. You just created some more margin for error but the, if, if, you, if you take a more conservative withdrawal rate, recognizing that, look, I probably, I'll probably look back and realize I could have spent more and had a higher standard of living, but I chose to play it a little bit safer. And then, of course, you can always make the adjustment 10 years right. later or five years later. Yeah. The other point, too, which people probably don't think about is uh, you can, in fact, guarantee yourself a steady lifetime income or a lifetime income that increases a little bit through an annuity, but the sure. cost of that is horrendous in most cases. That's most people the problem. Aren't, aren't willing to uh, give up that. They're, they're, they'd rather self-finesse it the way we're talking about here rather than go to an all-out annuity because annuities are good, but they also are, are costly. And well, that's the thing. And, and, in fact, I just read a, the most recent research by Morningstar on the, basically there's, you have two types of immediate income annuities. One is we're going to guarantee you this fixed payment for as long as you live. That's the most simple type. And then they can kind of back into what that really costs, what the load they, they call it. And then they looked at two other inflation adjusted. And, and as the article pointed out, was economists love, and I love the idea of I could go out and buy real you know, income that's inflation protected at the right price, count me in. And so they did some pretty interesting calculations to calculate really the price premium you pay for that protection. And the bottom line is if you want true inflation protection, you're paying three times the load for that guarantee of that inflation adjustment than you are for a simple nominal, here's your payment future. So the summary of that was it's a great idea, and I think the day will get there, but the cost of doing so is just yeah. it's too expensive. But it's not just the uh, load. It's also 
you're, you're, they're financing it with other kind of assets, low return assets. And, and when I say load, I don't mean in the traditional sense here. What am I paying as a as commission or they talk about matching it with actuarial right, expectations, right. et cetera. What's it really costing you in terms of lifestyle and you know to own that? It's just not quite ready for prime time. I do welcome the time when we get to these where just better analysis is done and, and they become cheaper. The next one is your own behavior. We talk about this a lot. Um, I'll let you guys, pont- you know, t- give me your spin on why your own investor behavior tends to be one of your risks in retirement. I think this is just like fundamental to human nature. It's just like you said earlier, when, when the emotions are high, you, you hear people on the news saying that the sky is falling, you naturally start panicking, you get emotional, you don't start thinking with your head, you start thinking with uh, your heart, and maybe you start thinking about, oh my gosh, I can't do what I'm accustomed to doing moving forward because everything's falling around me. So you start making the worst decisions at the worst times, and that's really the biggest problem and, and really the biggest wrecker of most retirements is somebody who just who can't get out of their own way or can step back from a particular incident or a news flash that says, Get out while you still can, because that's the ultimate and, destroyer. And this gets more challenging as we get older, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I was reading a research article, um, and basically they tried to quantify um, basically the financial literacy ability of people as they age. And what they found is that for every year after age 65, financial liter- literacy scores decreased by, I think it was 1% or 2%, 2% per think. year. And so that, that adds up over time. And anecdotally, that does match up with what my experience has been working with retirees all, you know, at all different ages, kind of from 65 to 95, is I see people relying on a lot more emotion as they get older, and they tend to kind of just be more emotional in general. And I, I think it, some of that has to do with that's kind of all they, they have. They're and, not as good at and just... And in that vein, have you re- guys re- recognized that as our clients, as year by year goes by, they tend to rely on us as their advisor even more for more decisions? I think so. I think they, they do. A lot of them end up just saying, well, I trust you. You know, at the end of the day, it's like they kind of offload that responsibility and decision-making to an advisor. I mean, I think, obviously, I'm biased. That's kind of the ideal scenario because... Um, Otherwise, you can have disastrous results. And what I was going to say at the beginning of this is the unfortunate reality is that one mistake can totally derail your your retirement. It can be something you never recover from. So perfect example would be, you know, if you were a retiree during 2008, if you started out with a conservative withdrawal rate and you were had a process for adjusting your withdrawals over time, you should have been fine. Obviously, an unfortunate draw as far as investment returns go, but you should have been fine. Financially fine. Maybe not so much. Emotional wreck, but financially you weren't in complete right. jeopardy. But if you sold in you know, February of 2009 at the bottom and uh, you know, missed out on the recovery and you kept spending even a somewhat similar amount to what you started at, you're going to run out of money. Yeah. I think if I was retired, so I, if I could be completely objective, uh, and, and I'm not, so I can't be. But I would tell anybody, you know what, the best best favor you can do yourselves is go as best you can, sift through all the financial advisors, lock into one that you get a really good feeling about on the front end of retirement because you're probably going to find yourself relying on that person uh, because you're going to worry about things you didn't used to worry about and you're not going to worry about things you used to worry about. But I think it's really important to why early in it is because maybe there's not as much value in the first five or ten years between a relationship between a financial advisor and a retiree. But what it does is let you observe your advisor over a period of three or five or eight years to find out just how trustworthy you deem them and whether you're in safe hands for those times when you may be more vulnerable. Look, it's not going to hit everybody, but I, I, it. Uh, I just remember my, uh, one of my clients, he's still alive, uh, who's a urologist, and he's talking about you know men, and he goes, oh, I see everybody eventually. And it's kind of like most investors, as they age, are going to get there and are going to need to rely more heavily, chances are, on their financial advisor more than uh, anybody else uh, for a good number of years. And uh, so, so that's my advice. Uh, well, try to change the best way to 
to deal with your own behavioral problems, and that's just a human nature, is to find someone who's not going to allow you to do those things. And something I, I would like to add to this section, too. Um, too late, Dave. We're moving on. Backtracking no, a little kidding. bit, but <laughs> I think financial... Uh, people tend to focus primarily on panic selling when they talk about bad investor behavior. But I think there's a second side to this coin, which is also people chasing performance and trying to, you know, invest in um, whatever the hot investment is right Right. now. Or, you know, lately it could even be something as simple as, well, I'm going to sell all my international investments because they're not doing well and put it all in the U.S. And just kind of if you're constantly performance chasing, even if it's not that one, which is what humans do, even if it's not that one huge mistake, you can do things that sabotage your investment results and lead to, you know, even if it's one or two percent worse returns or worse investment performance over your retirement, that can have a huge impact as I think, well. I think what people don't understand about a lifetime in investing is you don't have to make a lot of great investment decisions all the time throughout life to have a really good outcome. You, you, can, you can make pretty average decisions, but what will hurt you is one really bad, uh, emotionally charged decision at just the wrong time uh, can be disaster on the installment plan. It can really lead to a, a lot of things. Uh, longevity. Um, guys, when we're talking to clients and we're talking about, we're, well, how long does this plan last? Well, we have you out to age 93 or 94. Uh, there seems to be a level of disbelief, but for sure, compared to a generation or two ago, uh, people are retiring earlier and living longer, and this trend seems to be uh, increasing. And for people with money or people that have higher educations, uh, you, you know, the, and it, like I said, somebody just said, I think it might have been somebody from the University of Illinois, if all I wanted to know about longevity, all I need to ask somebody is, what's your level of education and what's your income been throughout your life and that's going to tell me more about longevity which by the way fred now this shocked me because you know the guy's gonna say i'm all over the place but i read (laughs) in the paper the other day in two different neighborhoods in chicago the life expectancy is 60 for one and 90 for another right that really highlights this fact that kind of education levels and income levels may be the biggest descriptor of of or predictor of how long you might live i mean as as a Economists, I would ask, are, are those representative? I mean, you may take Rogers Park, where a whole bunch of retired people. Yeah, I'm uh, sure they are. Sure, there are extremes. And, and, and so, so again, it, that's true, though. There, there are big differences. But we do have to deal in terms of people living into their 90s. At least one of them, the chance that one couple at age 65, non-smokers, reasonable health, the chances that one lived into their 90s is pretty good chance that one that we're betting on. And we're pushing ours out, but longevity, you know, uh, not too long ago when a a fellow would retire at 68 or 70, you know, and they were dead by 76 or 77, all of a sudden longevity really wasn't a big risk. But now we have people retiring in 60 and they're living into their 90s. Longevity's really popped up as as a really big financial planning issue, isn't it? Yep, certainly. And I was just looking at the stats this morning, and this is from 2017, so the stats always lag a little bit. But the average for a male in the United States uh, living is 77.1 years, and for women it's 81.3. One thing that I know I've heard you say, Paul, before is they, that you know that's the average. That includes everyone from the bottom to the top. So Well, the way I say it is, hey, that includes coal miners and crack addicts and probably crack addicted coal miners. <laughs> so kind well, of makes my point, not so eloquently, but it's kind of like, yeah, that, that really is true. And that's from birth. So if you look at the exactly. statistics for someone who's already reached, you know, 60 or 65, their life expectancy is going to be longer than that going forward. Yeah, it's, I, you know, you know me guys, and I sent it to you, I have to create my own calculator. So I, you know, I got all the actuarial life tables and I created my own uh, to really just to educate myself and do a deeper dive about the probabilities of our clients living. And it, is, it really opened up my mind, but it, it makes me realize, uh, especially when the authors and stud- people that are studying this say, look, people that have higher educations and higher inco- incomes, which would describe most of our clients, uh, the actuarial tables really don't describe their mm-hmm. probability of living to certain ages quite so well. Yeah, Sirs has found that out, too. Well, uh, and, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, the State University Retirement System has actuarial projections, and our uh, longevity is uh, our, our 
not the it's not the typical uh, right? right yeah I, well, that doesn't surprise me and how about this one guys we got a couple minutes dependent family members uh, this is a big one this is one showing up and walking through our doors more and more often how are we dealing with this and why is that such a risk so I think just because this is one of those major curveballs you might not have planned for necessarily uh, you, maybe you have a child who hey when you have kids like mine Ryan you plan for four of them <laughs> that's terrible um, you, so you might have a child moving in uh, back in the home something you probably didn't plan of uh, or maybe you even have the opposite maybe you have your own parent who's maybe on their own after maybe the one others um, passed away and now you're taking care of your mom or your dad in the home that you hadn't planned for so you have extra expense and p- potentially in your retirement so you're funding your own retirement plus potentially a parent or a child or in some cases you have the sandwich effect where you might even have both so these are those real big life curveballs that you know you, you don't expect and, and there's only so many resources so that's why working with a financial advisor is so re- brings so much relief at that point it's like look what I've been hit with how do I deal with this can mm-hmm. I deal with this uh, you know and to, so what you don't want to have is you don't want you know everybody going broke and so that really brings in having a financial advisor during those realistic and frequently more and more frequently uh, happening situations to us I'm gonna cruise through a couple you know what we'll save a couple of the other ones because uh, we might get into the, some of the past ones but medical issues are one obviously long-term care death of a spouse and then uh, he goes into some final thoughts and you can go to rudywealth.com and get that blog and the title of is the biggest threats to your retirement and I, th- I think he nailed them pretty well uh, of course I trained him so of course he's uh, smart <laughs> your brother Paul so uh, that takes us about where we are Fred uh, any last thoughts on we okay well, we're we gonna get a recession how uh, you're an economist no, let me, let gonna, me uh, give a different thought uh, <laughs> what we've done here today what we've done in the last half hour is really uh, indicative of what's happening in the uh, investment area there's a lot more emphasis now on withdrawals rather than accumulation and someone called in several shows ago saying how come we don't talk as much about investments anymore well the, you do but you also talk about how you use uh, the accumulation to uh, fund a retirement because the accumulation seems to be driven into us whether we react or not and uh, it seems to be more on autopilot but I remember Clint Atkins telling me one time he said Paul Everybody tells us how to save money, but they never tell you how to spend it. And that's kind of what you're saying is, and that's what we're really trying to address. How do we create the best life we can with the money we have? Well, guys, we're out of time. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more of Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks, Dr. Fred, David, and Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.